Hi, everyone. We are so excited that you are joining us for this week's incredible episode with Maria Whitcup. I wanted to take a moment before we get started today to let you all know that this episode includes some content that is graphic and shocking and might be disturbing to some of our listeners, as it should be. While this is a podcast designed to inspire our next generation of leaders by sharing women's stories, that sometimes means remembering and acknowledging the gravity and absolute necessity of the work that we do in this community. Thanks for joining us. Welcome to the Iron Butterfly Podcast, co-produced by the National Security Institute and the Amazing Women of the IC, better known as AWIC. My name is Megan Jaffer, and I will be your host. 80 years ago, Eloise Page joined the Office of Strategic Services, or the OSS, a predecessor for what we recognize today as the United States Intelligence Community. Page started as a secretary, but worked her way to becoming a case officer, and later she became the first female chief of station at CIA. Along the way, she earned the nickname Iron Butterfly, known for being a fierce fighter with a core of steel. The Iron Butterfly podcast aims to continue her legacy, inviting the U.S. intelligence community's unsung heroines to share their stories with aspiring IC leaders. Today, we are joined by Maria Whitcup. Maria is a 21-year veteran of the FBI. She has served in a variety of roles and investigations, from criminal cases to include violent crime and white-collar crimes to national security investigations. Maria was trained in evidence collection and joined the FBI's evidence response team, placing her at ground zero after 9-11. She furthered her training to become a team member of the Behavioral Analysis Unit working national security matters. She is a certified crisis negotiator and has provided training to multiple law enforcement agencies and hostage negotiation techniques. Maria, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I am really excited about this episode. So let's get started. Um, you know, you earned your degree in human relations before joining the FBI and then went on to receive your master's in diplomacy. How did you transition to becoming a special agent for the FBI and what was that process like for you? My transition into the FBI, into becoming an FBI agent was unexpected. I was working for a company and I was representing that company in an all-day job fair. As it happened, the FBI had a booth next to mine. You know, you stand at these events all day, and during the day, that FBI recruiter and I struck up a conversation. As we talked, he asked me to consider a career as an FBI agent. It was not a career choice that fit the scales of permission impressed upon me. I was a slightly built young female from a small rural town with no law enforcement background. I couldn't imagine becoming an FBI agent. Every depiction of the FBI represented middle-aged white men with degrees in law, accounting, or law enforcement, exactly like the agent standing in front of me, and not mm -hmm. at all like the young woman that I represented that day. <laughs> His request to fill out an application made me consider my life differently, and it caused me to rearrange the set of permissions I had been carrying. I remember saying to him, that I would take an application for my husband because in my mind at the time, he fit the brochure. The agent gave me two applications and he asked me to consider filling one out as well. 
I went home later that day and I looked at the application in my hand and I thought to myself, I'll fill this out and see what happens. But in the back of my mind, there was a voice that continued to doubt that I would ever be considered. I was stunned when I was invited to begin the longer application process of becoming an agent. The process has several phases and it can last more than a year. As I continued to move through the phases, I began to ask myself if I could see my life so differently. I couldn't have anticipated that single conversation would be an invitation to change the course of my life. The shift was a small opening in my self-perception. The prospect of trading in my long floral skirts for tactical clothing shattered the limits of permissions I carried. I remember a conversation with my sister during the process. She said to me, don't let them change you. And I remember responding, they're hiring me because of who I am. Wow, that's pretty powerful. So can you share with us a few of the different roles you held as a special agent and what skills helped you find success in those roles? Well, as you mentioned in the beginning, I've had the opportunity to wear a few different hats in my career. One of the most amazing things about the FBI is the opportunity to train and expand yourself within the organization. The FBI supports its people by allowing them to grow their interests and deepen their talents. I began my career working criminal cases. Criminal casework is fundamentally important. You learn the law, you guard the Constitution, you work with other law enforcement agencies, and you understand the process of our justice system. Criminal cases are built on evidence collection, and evidence is collected from different areas. It's collected from interviews, witness statements, confessions, and then there's physical evidence. The FBI has evidence response teams, and they're specialized in collecting physical evidence from crime scenes. So to become better at my job, I received specialized training and became an evidence response team member. I was part of one of the teams that responded to Ground Zero after 9-11. At the time, when we arrived, the black boxes from the planes had not been recovered, and we were assigned to an off-site location to sift through truckloads of rubble to find evidence. It was daunting, and we held the night shift, so we worked from sunset to sunrise. But the enormity of the destruction of 9-11 made evidence collection incredibly challenging. But it was that same impact of 9-11 that shifted my focus toward national security. After that experience, I thought about how to work differently and where in the FBI I could apply my set of skills and, my, and a broader understanding of what I wanted to do. So often our national security work does not see a courtroom, but because of our law enforcement authority, we always keep in mind that the outcomes of those investigations could bring criminal consequences. So we have to remain very vigilant to the Constitution under that apparatus of national security, I trained to become a counterintelligence agent so that I could work against the intelligence operations of adversarial nation states that were operating on our soil. And in order to understand that job better and to understand how our foreign adversaries worked, I eventually became part of the behavioral analysis program. But then throughout my career, I realized 
that the most important skill I held was my communication skills. So I know that over the years, I had to become better, better at that. And I had tens of thousands of conversations. I had to become comfortable talking with individuals who committed crimes and gain their confessions or witnesses who had suffered from a crime and gain their trust or sources who could help us with an investigation and gain their willingness. I also had to become really comfortable and good at communicating with experts, attorneys, judges, jurors, and other law enforcement officers, as well as our community members, my own colleagues, and executives. Becoming comfortable with uncomfortable conversations became absolutely necessary. So over time and into my career, I took my listening skills back to Quantico and I became a certified crisis negotiator. You mentioned that you worked in the behavioral analysis unit. Can you explain what that is and tell us a little bit more about what you did in the BAU? Yeah, of course. So most people are familiar with FBI profilers um, who've been depicted on the TV series. And the (laughs) FBI, they do, they do. The FBI has those profilers. But there is also a quieter national security component that works against our foreign adversaries. And across the country, the FBI has counterintelligence agents that support investigations by working closely with case agents to understand the motivations and the vulnerabilities of those people who are here from our foreign adversarial nations working against the United States. Working within these teams, I traveled around the country and I collaborated with agents investigating some of the most dynamic counterintelligence cases. Because the cases are classified, I I won't go into detail about the specifics, but being able to assist in understanding the ongoing threat that the United States faces from our foreign adversaries has always been incredibly meaningful. You also mentioned that you worked as a crisis negotiator. Could you tell us a little bit more about that position and what you did there? Yeah, so the crisis negotiation unit is actually headquartered in D.C. The unit is dynamic, and it's involved in domestic and international kidnappings of American citizens. So throughout all the FBI field offices, there are negotiators that respond in real time to kidnappings and crises that occur in their area. It's a coordinated effort. As a negotiator, we're called on to support families who have had loved ones kidnapped overseas. Um, We support tactical operations here domestically, and we provide instruction to our local and regional law enforcement officers. Um, One of the things that I really enjoyed was working with the families and being able to sit with them and being able to help them when they were in crisis, uh, wondering about their loved ones who had been kidnapped overseas, and then working with our units at headquarters to coordinate and to collaborate in trying to find a resolution to those families' uh, crises. And one of the other things that I think was also incredibly rewarding was conducting training for our regional and local police officers. Um, They really are the people on the front line and they often are the first to arrive on scene. They have to make split second decisions to resolve problems. Law enforcement officers face people in crisis every day 
And sometimes their very interaction with law enforcement can escalate a crisis. As a negotiator, we enhance communication skills to dramatically reduce crisis and try and resolve conflict. Policing often relies heavily on command and control to produce safe outcomes, and those are important tools. But strengthening how we listen is critical. In the negotiation courses, we talk about how listening increases information and that we make better decisions based on accurate information. Listening always demonstrates dignity, and dignity brings respect. If we want to influence outcomes and build trust, we have to begin by listening. It sounds like to me that there's this reoccurring theme for you in these positions, that listening and building trust, um, which I think will surprise some of our listeners. Can you share some more about that? Believe it or not, most people don't want to visit from the FBI. (laughs) (laughs) I can imagine so. Yeah, when we initiate contact with people, we have every understanding of why we're there. But their understanding of how we're going to impact their lives varies. People who commit crimes see the letters FBI and recognize immediately they're facing serious consequences. They don't want to go to jail, and they realize the weight of the outcome. And people lie to us a lot. They don't want to reveal their deepest, darkest secrets. We're successful in those cases because we are all well-prepared, and we maintain our core value of integrity. We represent authority and power respectfully. Every person... I have ever arrested, hugged me before they went to jail. Not because we were best friends, but because I treated them with dignity throughout the process. I held them accountable for the wrong and the pain they caused. They were responsible for their actions, but I was responsible for mine as well. Sitting across from people from different parts of the world and asking them for help gave me a better understanding of the corruption so many people face in their country's law enforcement and in their governments. To overcome fear, suspicion, and outright hatred takes a willingness to listen, to try to understand, and honesty in building trust and taking chances. I wear a badge and a gun And I represent power. How I approach that power differential matters. I think a lot of listeners are going to listen to the story and be surprised by a lot of things that that you're you're sharing with us. And one thing that just surprised me is that, you know, the people you arrested hugged you. I mean, I don't even know how to respond to that. That's um, (laughs) unexpected, I guess is the best way to put it. Wow. So, you know, one thing you told me was that working as a special agent took inventory of who you were every single day. What did you learn about yourself in this job? And how do you think who you are contributed to your success as an agent? Being an agent, you find yourself in pivotal moments, uncertain moments, going through a door, not sure what may shift inside, no matter how well you plan, placing handcuffs on a parent, and looking into the eyes of their children 
as you take away their mom or dad, hoping you said the right thing to a coworker as they struggle, not being home for birthday parties, anniversaries, big and small events in your family's life because work calls. Those are the tough moments that cause you to question, is it all worth it? Am I making any difference at all? But you find yourself sitting across small tables, listening to the stories of people who have lost their countries, their families, their hope, and that you are the single thread that they are willing to hold on to because they need to believe you will make a difference. You stay up all night at a crime scene searching for that one piece of evidence that will change everything, and you find it, and you know finally the victims will be heard. And then there are those moments after yet another long day that you come home. And your little girl has drawn a picture of you, the way she sees you, as a hero, with the words, I love you. And you think to yourself, yeah, it's all worth it. But every day, you teeter on that question. And every day, you're compelled to find the answer so that you can get up the next morning and do it all over again. Wow. I think you're going to hear that from me a lot through this episode. It just is, it's, uh, again, it's just so powerful. I got the chills from that answer. Thank you for, for, for sharing that with us. So, you know, you describe yourself as a change agent and many of our listeners who work in the government will be curious as to how you create change, especially within such a large bureaucracy. Has your gender impacted your approach? Yeah, I have always been a boots on the ground girl. Um, I believe ideas are only as effective as their implementation. Bureaucracies are not agile by nature, so change is often slower. But it's important that government be responsive, and it's critical that power be accountable. I think it's important that we see ourselves as something, as a part of something bigger that we want to make a difference in this life in our own way. I think each of us brings something to the table. I found there's advantage to not being what people expect of an FBI agent. Sometimes it's tough to see how we make a difference when our contribution feels outweighed by the mass of the organization that surrounds us. But we are ripples. And ripples don't change the course of the water all at once. But when each ripple connects to another, change gets bigger. Don't underestimate your ripple effect. Just like this podcast is connecting you to those around you who want to be a part of making a difference. Together, we gain momentum and create incredible energy toward change. It's in every single one of us. I couldn't agree more. You know, I wanted to switch gears a little bit and talk about storytelling, um, because our listeners might not know that you're in the process of writing a book about your life and your amazing career. Um, why is story and uh, storytelling important to you, and why is it important to listen to each other's stories? Human beings are unique, and that we're the only species that tells stories. We've been doing it since the cave writings on the wall. Stories connect us. Stories bond us emotionally when we find ourselves in the stories of others. They allow us to feel something and create a sense of unity. When we connect through stories, we have the capacity 
to elevate our understanding of one another. We have the opportunity to walk in one another's shoes and broaden our view of the world. Stories are essential to our human connectedness. We cannot find each other and we cannot know each other until we understand each other's stories. We grow and learn and are elevated when we recognize a part of ourselves in each other's stories. Too often, we find ourselves kicking as fast as we can to get ahead in the race of life, but we need to stop kicking and we need to start reaching. It's only through reaching that we find ourselves and we find each other. So I know that the book, Just Mercy, was very impactful for you. Why has that book been impactful? And what have you taken from that book and applied to your own career? Discovering Just Mercy was another example of an unexpected moment that shaped my life. I was traveling for work and I was desperately undercaffeinated when I realized I didn't <laughs> pack a book to read on the plane. So as I approached the cash register to pay for my coffee, I saw Just Mercy displayed on the counter. I picked it up and I ran with it and my coffee to catch my plane. And I read the book while I was traveling. And I will remain forever grateful to Brian Stevenson. Although I've never met him, he is one of my heroes. Brian is an attorney who has dedicated his life to fighting injustice. He honors the lives of those who have been dishonored in our justice system. The stories of his book are stories of people whose voices have been silenced by those in positions of authority and power. There is likely not a single conversation that goes by with me that I don't recommend his book. And here's why. As an FBI agent, when I enter people's lives... I hold the authority and the power to change the course of those lives. I don't expect my position as an FBI agent to be received with unquestioned trust in my authority. But I believe in bringing dignity to every encounter because it represents how I expect to be treated and how I intend to treat others. Holding myself and others accountable by affecting the power differential with respect. In my position... I held the power to change the ground beneath people's feet, but the experiences of my life allowed me to know disempowerment and suffering, as well as responsibility, accountability, and redemption, not only my own, but also as a witness to those lives I've encountered along the way. To quote Brian Stevenson's grandmother, you can't understand the most important things from a distance. You have to get close. I've spent my career sitting across from people, listening so I could try and understand the most important things. Throughout Brian's book, he tells the stories of the struggle and pain of men he defends. But the passages I carry with me every day are from the women. His grandmother's words serve as my compass always asking myself, what do I need to get closer to to understand its importance? There's a woman named Mrs. Jennings that responds to Brian's warnings about expectations in the book. She acknowledges that we all go through a lot, some more than others, but she goes on to say, if we don't expect more from each other, hope better for one another, and recover from the hurt we experience, we are surely doomed. 
I believe hierarchies are most effective when power enables the least empowered, creating environments of health, trust, and secure growth. People make mistakes. Strong people take responsibility for their mistakes. Pain and suffering is universal, yet the relief of suffering is within our reach. We each hold the potential. The truth is, none of us walks undamaged. We need to stop kicking and start reaching. It's only when we see our interconnectedness that we are able to understand our place in this existence. None of us lives in this world without carrying hurt or pain, but when we discharge our pain onto one another, we advance suffering. It is an unavoidable contribution to our shared humanity, but it is not all we carry. It is in the space we hold for one another that binds us in grace. There's a chapter uh, from your book called Girl in a Box that encompasses how you have reached instead of kicked and chose to be close to people in order to understand them. Would you be willing to share a chapter with us? Of course, yeah. Um, it's kind of one of the first chapters in the book. Um, so yeah, the girl in the box. Um, I was working in the office the afternoon of Christmas Eve when the call came through. The evidence response team was being called out to a homicide scene on federal land more than two hours away. Each of us drove to the offsite location to organize the team's mobile response truck with the supplies and equipment needed for the crime scene. And then we paired up in cars to make the drive. It was late in the day, raining and dark. Traffic was miserable as thousands of cars dotted the freeway with taillights, carrying their passengers out of town into the Christmas holiday. The drive took longer than expected, and we were ready to get to work when we arrived at the long and narrow gravel driveway. The house was set back off a rural road in a thick wooded area. Our vehicles formed a snake line down the driveway, pinched on either side by thick brush and tall weeds. Our headlights lit up the small house, and our vehicles crowded the driveway, encroaching onto the front yard. We met with the investigators, already on scene, to get briefed on the aspects of the case. We were told that there was a party in the house the night before and a young female was killed. The body of the girl was removed off-site near a logging road a couple miles down from the scene. The man who killed her had been arrested and was providing information to assist in the recovery of her body. After receiving as much detail on the body's location as possible, the team divided into two smaller teams. It was going to be a long night with two crime scenes to process. I joined the body recovery team assigned to the logging road location. Off the logging road and down a steep embankment, deep into the trees, a teenage girl's body was buried in a box. It was our job to find her and collect any salvageable evidence from the scene. Wearing rubber boots and carrying flashlights, we formed a loose search line from the logging road and slowly walked shoulder to shoulder into the wooded area. The ground beneath our feet was soaked by rain and mushy from the leaves of hundreds of trees crowding the gaps of the sky above us. Each flashlight held a simple vertical line that jostled with every step, making the view of the landscape bounce and shift. Steady rain slid from my hood onto my face, discouraging each step forward. Although we moved slowly, quietly, and deliberately, our presence felt resisted by the woods that night. Under a tall evergreen tree, lightly buried under some branches and leaves, was a simple cardboard box. The box edges were sagging from the soaking rain. Approaching with care and carefully brushing away the debris, we opened the lid of the box. Inside was a small, young teenage girl with long, dark hair curled up with her chin 
resting on her knees in a fetal position. Long straight hair neatly encircled the curve of her back, almost touching her feet. She looked carefully placed, intentionally tucked away, not discarded. As I looked at her, I thought, it's Christmas Eve and her parents are about to be informed that their daughter was dead and placed in a box under a tall evergreen tree. Those moments carve out a separate space within me. They can't be reconciled, and they never blend into the background of years on the job. Our team leader called back to the team at the house to let them know the body was found. Coordinating her removal was the next step, so a few individuals stayed on scene waiting for the medical examiner's arrival, while most of us went back to the house to process any additional evidence on site and conduct interviews. I interviewed the guy who killed the girl in the box. As I sat down with them, I noticed he wasn't nervous or reluctant to talk. He told me about the night of the party and the girl. He told me that she was drinking and spending time with some people she should not have been with. She was drinking too much, and at some point during the party, she was raped. He knew she would never be the same again, and her reputation would forever be altered. He couldn't accept the damage to her future, so he did the only thing possible in his mind to preserve her image and save her reputation. As she lay passed out on the floor, he took a wooden chair with four spindles around the base, placed it over her throat, and applied his body weight until he crushed her airway. Once she was dead, he folded her small body into a box and took her to the woods to bury her. He saved her from a future he couldn't accept and kept her innocence protected. He told me this with a sense of duty and care. It was an unexpected confession. The crime scene and investigation gave us the who, what, how, and when, but the why was uncovered in his confession, giving us understanding to motive. It reminded me that sometimes the most righteous deeds take lives without remorse. I think we all need to take a moment and a breath after that that chapter. I know I need one. Yeah. Um, I, I can't. I can't even imagine um, being in that moment. And and I just thank you so much for sharing that with us. It can't be easy after all of these years. No, you're very welcome. I think that um, it demonstrates how important it is to see one another. You know, I think it's a perfect example of how you reached and allowed yourself to get close to someone many of us would have pulled away from. How, how can we become better at reaching out and not kicking as well and just truly listening? I believe our world exists in the humanity we cultivate, our duty to one another. I believe in hard work, earning one's way, and that by doing that, you bring dignity to your accomplishments. You need to find the strength to examine ourselves and to understand others and the courage to take a chance on both. My dad taught me this when I was young. My dad was, um, he never finished college, but he was a brilliant man. And he was kind of a tinkerer. He used to always tinker on cars and bikes. And we didn't have a lot of money growing up. So he was pretty creative in how he would find solutions. 
I will give you an example. Um, like if there would be a hole in one of our car mufflers, he would take one of those cantina tomato cans and he would fit it over the hole <laughs> and he would patch it <laughs> and it would last for, you know, a couple of days, you know, or so, depending on how often and how hot we were driving the car at the time. Um, then he would take wires and he would, you know, he would lift hoses under the cars and he would take different parts from different bikes and kind of put things back together. And what he taught me was the, the lesson of possibility. And I, I expanded his lessons to see that people should never be reduced to one dimension, but instead expanded to know their possibilities. That finding the capacity and the resolve to stop kicking, to reach, and to listen so a better future can be realized. I really don't want this episode to end, but I feel like that was the perfect way to end the episode. But before we do, you know, we do like to end each episode by asking the same question. And, you know, keeping in with the name of our podcast, Iron Butterfly, if you were to give yourself a code name, what would it be and why? It would be Stonecatcher. And it comes from Just Mercy. In honor of the older woman who sits on the marble courthouse steps in the massive courthouse hallway wearing her church meeting hat, she shows up in honor of her grandson and to honor the gift of having someone to lean on through the pain. Her grandson was killed, and the boys that killed him were sentenced and put in prison forever. But justice didn't stop the pain. Watching two other boys hauled away to prison only made it worse. It was the act of compassion of another woman, a complete stranger, who sat with her for an hour as she cried that day, that helped her find her healing. She finds herself back at that same courthouse sitting and waiting, just in case someone needs someone to lean on, because she knows the pain of the stones we hurl at one another. And we need more stone catchers in this world. We sure do. I cannot thank you enough, A, for your service to our country, for joining us and sharing your story and your candor, your honesty. We are so lucky that you shared um, all of that with us today. And thank you. We really look forward to when your book comes out. We (laughs) hope that we can chat again at that time. Thank you so much for having me and allowing me to kind of share my life experiences and uh, hopefully connect as a ripple to catch more stones. This has been an episode of Iron Butterfly, co-produced by the amazing women of the IC and the National Security Institute at George Mason Scalia Law School. To find out more about AWIC, email us at awicpodcast at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. You can also learn more about NSI and upcoming events at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. If you like the show, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. Lastly, we'd like to thank Grant Haver for production assistance. Stay fierce, and we'll talk next time.